0: In the beginning, that's the title of the sermon series that we've been engaged with uh, for the past several weeks. In the hustle and bustle of just everyday life of, of working and going to school and trying to be friends with people and just all the stuff that life brings, it's important, I think, for us to remember that we're part of something bigger, a bigger community, a bigger story, but not just part of something bigger, but part of someone bigger. Uh, The fact is that we are part of God's creative story from beginning until end. So we've been taking a look at Genesis 1 through 11, and in Genesis 1 we saw how God created all things. He spoke them into existence, and then he created men and women in his image as the crown of his creation. He created us... To be his living representatives on earth, to reflect his good character, his just reign over the earth, to basically rule as God's regents in the earth. Genesis 1-11 through tells this story of beginnings, but also tells the story and the repeated story of how God creates, how he blesses and gives people freedom and a job, and then they rebel. And then he has to punish, and then he gives grace. So it's this, this cycle of, of fall and grace over and over again. We see the cycle of rebellion uh, and the consequences in grace. We see it in Adam and Eve, and Cain and Abel, and in the story about Noah. And this evening we're going to conclude our series in Genesis 1-11 through 11 with the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel story is in many ways a lampoon. It's a satire on the idea that people can actually find unity without God in the center of it. Now, with the snow on the ground this weekend and Thanksgiving just a week away, it's really hard for me not to be thinking about Christmas. I'm resisting I know some of you have already caved into Christmas music, but I'm, I'm resisting till after Thanksgiving. Um, but what it makes me think of is National Lampoon's Christmas vacation. right? I mean, what is Christmas without Christmas vacation? In Christmas Vacation, we see a satire on white, middle-class, suburban families and their cultural ideal of what makes the perfect Christmas, right? So there's the neighborhood competition of how many lights you can throw on your house. There's the Clark Griswold character who typifies the average guy who's stuck in the belly of some nameless corporation, destined to be in middle management forever, he's overspent, right, how much money he actually has, and now he's desperate for this Christmas bonus so that he doesn't go into financial ruin. Also, he can have a swimming pool. And, of course, there's this thin veneer that that we like to put up, right, that the Griswold family has put up, this thin veneer of, hey, everything's just perfect in our family. And all of that is shattered when cousin Eddie drives up in his RV and parks it out front. I think he like, takes a leak on the lawn or something like that. But anyhow, it's just a satire on this white picket fence, perfect little world that we try and build for ourselves. By the end of the film, this family is physically, emotionally, and financially exhausted. They're at the end of their rope. But it's at the end they realize what's actually important to them. Not lights not the pageantry of a Norman Rockwell Christmas dinner, what really mattered to the Griswold family was family and love. And I know it's over-sentimentalized, and I know it's really sappy, but it sure is, it sure is funny. <laughs> it's a heck of a lot of fun. Um, well, to the ancient Israelites, the Tower of Babel story is a kind of a lampoon. It's a, it's a lampoon on trying to organize life without God at the center. Now, before we dig into the text, I want to point a few things out just for context, right? Because what do we always say? Context, context, context. That's how we understand these texts. So after the flood, God made a covenant with Noah and his family. Noah had these three sons, right? he blessed them and he told them in no uncertain terms here's what I want you to do I want you to spread out over the earth and multiply right what that means is I want you to go and live into the vocation that I've given to you that I've created you for to be my image bearers across the earth okay I want you to lovingly and wisely rule over the earth while remaining in a loving and obedient relationship with me not me God you know what I'm saying Okay, and, and Noah begins this faithfully. He, he goes out from the, from the ark, and he uh, it's pretty cool, actually. He becomes a vintner, right? So Noah gives us wine way long ago. And uh, one night, you know, he must have been wine tasting too hard because he's kind of hungover. And his son, one of his sons, Ham, does something very shameful to his father. Noah curses Ham, and he blesses his other two sons, Shem and Japheth. Now, chapter 10, which follows that story, is this genealogy. It's really important, but it's really tough to preach, so I'm not going to—that's why we're skipping to 11. Uh, But anyway, in this genealogy, it kind of explains what happens to these three sons and their families. And what it says is that these sons have kids, and these kids have kids, and what ends up happening is they become different nations— with different languages, okay? Now, from Ham, remember he's the cursed son, come a bunch of kids that become fathers of nations that would eventually be thorns in the side of Israel. You've heard of Canaan probably. Well, Canaan comes from this line of Ham. And Ham has this particular son named Nimrod, right? Like, why do you name your kid that? But uh, Nimrod uh, isn't really explained in the scripture, but one way to translate that word in Hebrew is rebellion, is a people who, who, I will rebel, is basically what Nimrod means. And Nimrod was this mighty hunter before the Lord. I'm sure you've heard that, right? Like Nimrod, a mighty, anyway. He's a mighty hunter before the war, the, the Lord. And in particular, this guy Nimrod builds a city. And the city Nimrod builds is called Babel, or Babylon, okay? Dun-dun-dun, do you hear the organ music? is Babylon, right? Babylon is this is this country that would eventually enslave Israel and bring them off into captivity uh, in their own land. So, Nimrod is the father of Babylon. Chapter 10 then tells us that Noah's kids produce all these nations and all these languages, and chapter 11 now tells us how that happened. So you've got Noah's story, the three sons are born, the blessing and the curse. Then chapter 10 is the genealogy that says how these sons spread out, what nations they became, and the languages, right? Chapter 11, you could think of it, if you're thinking of it as a, as a movie, it'd be the flashback scene. How did these families spread out? Why do they have different languages? Okay, so now we're going to flash back, and here is the story. Would you stand with me, please, as I read Genesis 11, 1 through 9? Feel free to follow along, but again, because this is, for many of you, such a familiar text... You might just want to close your eyes and let the words wash over you like you're hearing it for the first time. Now the whole earth used to speak the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower, whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, Let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not be able to understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. You may be seated. Okay, so as we enter this text, I kind of want to look at it from two perspectives. I want to take a look at it from the cultural background perspective, uh, how this text, this story, may have encouraged the people of Israel. Okay, and that's going to take up probably the bulk of what I say because... With these ancient texts, it's just really hard for us at a surface level to, to get what's going on. But the second thing I want to do is take a look at how this story should have challenged the people of God and should definitely challenge us today, okay? So here we go. Just a little background. When God called the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt and promised to give them their own land, it was a most unlikely change of events. If you're uh, nerdy like me and you like Lord of the Rings and could watch it all over and over again, it's like you've got this whole Middle Earth place and you've got these big players. I mean, you've got Gondor and you've got Rohan and you've got Mordor and all these big people. And who does the ring come to, right? A little hobbit. Just a little hobbit. First goes to Bilbo. He finds it. A most unlikely person finds it, right? And it goes to, to Bilbo and then and then to Frodo. And it's... That is what I think about when I think of Israel. Here are these big players in the world, Babylon and Egypt. And here are this group of people. They were just called the Hebrew people, actually. They didn't even have a nation. They're slaves for Egypt, basically building bricks and things like that. And God says, I want to rescue this world that's gone awry. I'm going to choose these people. I mean... If I were in charge, wouldn't it be like, I'll choose this big, glorious country, and, and then it'll be known by my name, and I'll have this great name because Babylon will be uh, um, associated with me. But you no, know, God picks this unlikely people, the Hebrew people, who were enslaved and oppressed. God delivered them and chose to, to use them as the instrument with which he was going to rescue the world. Even at their height of power, Israel was a pretty small nation compared to the grandiose ancient civilization surrounding her. Babylon, in particular, was a very ancient city that boasted to be none other than the gateway to God. In fact, that's what that name, Babel or Babylon, means in Akkadian, which is their language. The Babylonian myth was that some of their many pagan gods actually built that city when the earth was created. So they were bragging that hey man, our city's from the very beginning of the earth that these the gods made our city. Men didn't make our city. So, now we're reading at Israel's accounts, Israel, this slave people get revelation from God. And they, he, God tells them the story of how things actually happened. And what they say is that Babylon, the Babylonians came from some dude named Nimrod, who's a rebel. And this guy Nimrod is connected to Noah, from whom we know everybody's connected. So wait a minute, Babylon. You're not so great The gods didn't make your city. Nimrod made your city, so... See how this is beginning to lampoon the story of Babylon, right? So you're Israel, you're kind of like smirking and laughing and saying, Ha, Babylon, you're not so special, you came from Nimrod, who comes from Noah. So, uh, all the people spoke the same language, it kind of makes sense, they all came from the same family. And uh, which direction did they they travel? Come on now, small group, come on my small group. East. Organ music again, dun-dun-dun. What happens in Genesis when we look east? This is one of the buzzwords I've been talking about. Um, We should do a little Jeopardy sometime. It would be fun to see how much you're paying attention. But uh, east, when we see east in Genesis... It it, it typically means something bad. So God expels Adam and Eve where? East. And Cain, when he gets punished, he goes east. And so east becomes kind of this literary device that, well, I mean, it actually happened too, that lets us know that either somebody did something wrong or they're about to do something wrong. So these people head east, and then what do they do? They settle. They settle. If... You know, you never probably read uh, Harry Potter or any kind of novel one page at a time, do you? You probably, like, just blaze through a novel, uh, maybe a chapter at a time, at least, or something like that. Well, it's really funny how we end up talking about the Bible in these little snippets of nine verses tonight. But if we had been reading this like it should be read in a long story, we would have just read the story of Noah and the covenant and God saying, Hey, folks, spread out. Spread out, be my regents around the earth. And now we're reading this exact opposite thing, that the people head east. Uh-oh, something bad's going to happen. And what do they do? They settle. They do not spread out, okay? They settled there. They're supposed to spread out and glorify his name, but instead they settle down and build a monument to their name. Listen to these, these words. Let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad. Their fear was they might be spread out and insecure. They might lose their fame. They might lose their name. They didn't trust that God might just give them a great name. He might care for their needs if they would just obey him. You know, God gave Abraham a great name. God gave David a great name. And in Scripture, we see God giving the, the obedient people... Great name, great reputation, and the ironic thing is here are these people settle down and they build a monument to their own name, their disobedient, and they sure did make a name for themselves, right? Because what are we talking about right now? How silly their move was, how they come from Nimrod, and it, or lampooning the people of Babel, right? So they build a tower whose top or rosh head will reach into heaven, and they decide to use bricks and tar instead of stone or mortar. And this is a little detail in the scripture, and it's, it's a really subtle, again, lampoon that Israel would have been all chuckling about. Let me explain. In the ancient Near East, quarried stone was a preferred uh, building material. Israel's temple is made out of solid stone, giant pieces of stone. Well, Babylon is building this tower, this ziggurat, out of baked bricks, which are not as preferred as stone. And so by adding this detail, the narrator is kind of like encouraging Israel, saying, I, I see straight face. I know that's not very funny to me either, but to Israel, it would have been really funny, like, ha ha, those Babylonians who think they're so great, uh, their tower thing is made of big bricks. Our temple's made of stone. We rule. Okay, so, so I had that. It's a little lampoon there. Okay, so what is the deal with this tower? Most likely, Ian's going to show us a picture here. the t- The tower was probably a giant ziggurat, and that's a representation of what a, a ziggurat might look like. Ziggurats were not cities, they were not temples, they were not even fortresses. In fact, all of that mass that you see has no chambers in it. It's, it's really nothing but a staircase. Isn't that weird that you would go to all that trouble and not put anything in there? Okay, so nobody lived there. Nobody really did much there. It was just a big staircase that could reach heaven. So they said. See, in in, in the pagan thought in the na- ancient Near East, staircases to heaven were not so much so that people could get to heaven but so that their gods could come to earth, okay? makes you say, kind of weak gods if they need people to build a staircase, but that's kind of the point. You see, what happens when people rebel against God, and and I was reflecting on this. This is true in my life, too. Um, Think about it for yourself. But when people rebel against God and seek self-reliance instead of trusting in him, we often live in guilt and shame, don't we? We, we, we recognize that we've transgressed, that we've not been obedient to God. We kind of wanted to do it our own way, and so we feel a little guilty about that. So what happens is you can do one of two things. You can humbly repent and say, you know, God, I, I was really trying to be my own God there, and I, I repent. I want to change my heart, right? I want to follow you. Or what you can do is just say, I don't want to do that because every time I'm confronted with God, I keep feeling guilty. So I know what I'll do. I'll invent my own God, who's nicer than the real God, okay? So we create these substitute gods, these other things, maybe they're ideals that we put our hope in, like politics, maybe we, we, we put all our eggs in that basket. Economics, right, we can put all our eggs in that basket. Relationships, we can put all our eggs in that basket, or some attempt at social unity. And the funny thing is that as human beings, we're, we're just kind of funny creatures. We like to rebel against God and do it our own way. We like to make up our own gods so that we don't have to deal with the real one. But the problem is that we are created to worship. And that poses some big issues. Because now I've got this drive to seek something beyond myself. What do we do? What do we do? Well, You can either be here like you are tonight and try and seek uh, the living God. Or you can make... Gods in your own image. You can make gods in your own image. I'm reading uh, Homer's uh, Iliad right now. Just got some light reading for before bed, and uh, it's it's just so amazing that he, he, you know it's not it's not just a story. This Homer's poetry uh, became a, a religious foundation for the Greek pantheon. And what you read about these gods, they're so trivial, right? They're they're backbiting each other and they act. Actually, they act like adults only, misbehaving adults all the time, constantly interfering with each other and fighting and all this kind of stuff. It would be scary if God was like that, right? Well, the Babylonians created gods too, and their main god was named Marduk. Marduk and the other gods, it was believed, had to travel vast distances to get from heaven to earth. And so um, the tops of these ziggurats see a little like square thing on the top, there would be a little shrine up there. And what you would do is, there's a cot, check this out, there's a cot in there, and every day a priest would come up and put fresh water and fresh food out. You know why they would do that? Is because because, um, you know, traveling with children, I know where that last rest stop is after Smoky Point before you get to Bellingham. Had to change a few diapers there before, like, this is that last rest stop where the gods, you know, they've traveled all this distance, and now they get to the top of the staircase, and before that long walk down, these people thought that, The gods would have to take a nap at that cot, and then they could freshen themselves up with with a little food and water, right? So that's what a ziggurat was for, was actually help the gods come down. And why would you do that? Because if you said, I've got the staircase, the gate to heaven, and the high god Marduk is going to come to my town... You basically have harnessed that power. You can manipulate people. If you're the king of Babylon, you can say, I've got the direct line to Marduk. He comes to my town, so you better do what I say because if you're angry at me, you're angry at my God. And then people would be freaked out. It was a way that they could control and try and harness this idea of God. And the funny thing is, thanks, Ian, um, no matter how we distort our idea of God, and try and make him into our image. It doesn't change the fact that there is a real almighty God who is all-knowing and all-powerful. So Yahweh sees these people making this tower, this tower that they consider to be the most technologically advanced, architecturally superior, the highest tower known to mankind. And the scriptures say, and this is again poking fun of it, I've got to come down even to see this thing. God had to come down even to notice it. It's so pathetic in his view. And, you know, we we read things in, like, Isaiah 40, this this language about God, like God seeing the nations are just like grains of sand, right? And so this thing that the Babylonians think is so great, you know, God has to stoop to even see it. And now Israel is laughing out loud, uh, as, as we might laugh out loud at Clark Griswold when we see uh, Cousin Eddie's RV pulling up in his front lawn, shattering his idea of the perfect, perfect suburban dream, right? So the text reads like this. The Lord said, Behold, we are one people, and they all have the same language. I'm sorry, the Lord said, They are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they begin to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible. sounds weird, doesn't it? It sounds a bit like God's threatened. Oh no. What are they going to do with all of this power? But the problem with that view is it doesn't take into account the rest of Scripture. It doesn't take into account. I mean, the same narrator who wrote this story was the same one who said that God spoke the universe into existence with His voice. And... I know this was written a long time ago, but people weren't any less intelligent than us. So he's not writing this, this contradiction here. So, what is, the, what is this meaning? Um, how do we read this? I'll tell you how. Uh, with this. With this. Okay. Candace Kennedy, you bought this for us. Are you in here? Oh, she's downstairs. Candace bought this because when we moved into our home two years ago, had some really high cabinets, and I'm vertically challenged. And so uh, she bought that that for us to stand on. This is Sophia's Tower of Babel. Let me explain. See, Corey and I want the best for uh, for Stella as Stella's Tower of Babel. We want the best for Stella, who turns two next month, and so we've set up some boundaries for Stella. You know basic things that parents do. Don't stick your finger in that light socket. Don't touch the stove when you know there's boiling water on. Actually, don't touch the stove ever. Uh, and then, you know, maybe like you, we have this sacred countertop in our kitchen where pretty much everything that doesn't have a home goes on. Stuff like our wallets and our keys and coins that kids could choke on and permanent markers and scissors and and Cory sets our recycling stuff there basically saying, Chris, take me out. So there's cans and there's bottles and so if any 2 year old or a 2b 2 year old could get up there it would be real trouble right so we say you know you can't get up there well stella has physical limitations she's about this tall she cannot get up there yet but she's discovered this she's discovered this so if you come to our house and you stay long enough you'll see this and then you know whatever she wants she can get to that's her tower of Babel. She's unable to break the rules that we've put out for her on her own. So she's not built it, but she's used this man-made construction to try and usurp those bounds. She's even written on a few of my sermons from time to time, which is sometimes I lose my place because there's ink on them I'. Uh, her stool is like the unified language of the Tower of Babel. She's able to do things. Uh, You know anything is possible for her within the realm of what I was talking about. So listen, I set up this example with, Corey and I have set up boundaries in our house to keep Stella away from hurting herself. Because I know that if she continues to use this thing, she's going to knock over bottles or, or choke on a coin or something like that. So it makes sense if I were to say, with this stool, nothing is impossible for Stella. In the context of my example of keeping her safe around the house. When I say nothing is impossible for Stella with this stool, you don't think that's a weird thing to say. You don't think that by saying that, I I mean Stella could go to the moon with this stool. Right? So we have to read this in context, that God is talking about these boundaries that he's placed out. And these people are usurping those boundaries, that call to spread out. And what he means is, not that nothing will be impossible for them, but nothing as far as holding back from those boundaries will be impossible. What, you know, with this, what Stella thinks is going to bring her freedom will eventually hurt her. If she's able to grab something dangerous. And so now I see exactly what God is doing. He sees that people are afraid and that they're united in their rebellion against him. And he knows that if people fortify their hearts, you know that word impossible that we read in English, that actually means impenetrable. It's a a word in Hebrew that talks about uh, fortresses. It's interesting because I think that God knows if people are able to hunker down and to just look inward and be self-centered and try and be self-sufficient without relying on Him, their hearts will become impenetrable. And God tell you, the Scriptures talk a lot about us hardening our hearts like the people did at Meribah. Don't harden your hearts because what happens is when we hear the voice of the, of the Lord and we continue to ignore it or say, no God, no God, no God. Eventually, it becomes more and more difficult to hear His voice. And friends, I don't know about you, but I don't want to get there to where I'm not hearing the Lord anymore. That's what obedience does and disobedience does. Disobedience over and over again makes our hearts impenetrable because we don't want to hear it. And you know what? God respects you too much to continue um, to force His will on you. He won't do that. So God, I think, out out of a gift of mercy, gives them different language spreads them out, scatters them, so that they can go be what they're meant to be. Maybe the biggest lampoon in this whole story is the name that we give the tower, Babel. As I mentioned before, in Akkadian, which is what the Babylonians spoke, Babel meant gateway to God. I mean, they were totally bragging about this. Uh, Ian, put on that second photo, man. The Hebrew, there's, there's Cousin Eddie. In the Hebrew, Babel sounds just like this word Balal, which means to confuse. So here the, the Babylonians are these you know, these proud, arrogant people who think, oh, the gods built this tower for us and gave us the gateway to God and to our city. We've got the direct line. And the Israelites are laughing, saying, your tower sounds like confusion. Uh, and there's the Cousin Eddie pulling up in your driveway, um, shattering your your view of your, your perfect life, right? So, yeah. Okay, thanks. That's pretty distracting, actually. <laughs> uh, so, you know, hey, great story, right? Interesting historical background. You could say all those things. Everyone gets a laugh at the Babylonians. But what does this story really say to the Israelites? Why is it in the scriptures besides to be maybe encouraging the, to them or, or to show that Babylon really isn't the greatest in the world? What does it say to us? See, the sad truth is that Israel, Israel would forsake their God as well. That in the beginning when they were a slave people and God brought them out of Egypt, He kept them alive, they were dependent on Him. But soon after, they developed an arrogance. Hey, we're the chosen people. We've got this lineage from Abraham. And then soon after that, they began to become self-reliant and not trust on the living God, but on more powerful nations maybe that they could make um, alliances with. And after time and time again of God trying to get their attention, he said, you know what, you guys have it your way. Israel, taken into captivity by Babylon. The ones that are confused, the one with this tower. So now Israel... The people, the heirs of the revelation of the living God, are living as slaves in a land where they know worship false gods. And it's completely humiliating. The call on Noah's tribe and upon the people who call themselves Jesus followers, like many of us, right? It's to go, to make disciples, to engage the world, to spread out, to go out, to be engaged in sharing the blessing of God with all those around us. The tower builders were about making a name for themselves. The tower was intended to bring the gods down so they could somehow harness the gods, they could somehow own them for themselves. And you know, we can become gatekeepers if we're not careful. We can try and have structures and and boundaries, and we can have our, our own theological systems and buildings and structures and churches, and those are all great tools, but they're horrible masters if you take Jesus out of the middle of it. I think we need to ask ourselves the question Am I like Babylon? Am I like Nimrod? I don't like to say that, but... Am I constructing a tower of Babel in my life, in my heart? You know, what stools do I carry around my life to usurp God's boundaries that he's laid out for my own good? What or in whom am I placing my trust? I think this can be really dangerous in the church... So you can think about it personally, but it can be really dangerous in the church. We like delivering Thanksgiving meals to people like we did today. We like to talk about justice and peace and unity. And these are all wonderful things. But without Jesus at the center, it'll all come crashing down. It will all come crashing down. I, I, I rubbed up against that today when I was in the living room of this family. And I'm saying, I'm so glad, you know, I can give these very needed food items. There's a child there living there, and um, and I just I know some things about this family. I just know that he's not getting very much attention, very much love, at all. And um, there's and I, you know, really, I'm powerless. I wanted to. To do so much more, you know, I want to help this mom out, I want to help her, you know, hey, you know what can we do for you? Can we help you get in rehab? Can we help you but folks see, I mean I, you can 't just bust in when people aren 't ready to be helped, and it 's kind of heartbreaking, and this is where all of our good deeds. Hit a brick wall. This is where in no social service, no political agency, nothing can make the changes in the world that we so long for except Jesus changing hearts, one heart at a time. And I'm so thankful that He's changed mine and is still changing mine and has changed yours and is still working on you. But if it's also that we can come here and feel good about who we are and Dang, gummit! We just helped all these families out, but we're not praying that the Spirit of the Living God would still be there working while we're not there, friends. That's what—that's our real job. That's our real job. Because only God can change those lives. And putting Jesus at the center doesn't mean a token prayer over the the things that we already plan to do. Or um, saying, you know, God bless my agenda. It means repentance. It, it really means repentance. It really means that you and I have got to be desperate for Jesus. We've got to come up against those brick walls. Because if we think we can do it all ourselves, we're living a lie. We've got to confess, I think... That sometimes we build these towers of Babel around us. We attempt to control God. Hey, we've got the direct pipeline to God. Come to us. We'll tell you about him. Right? I don't think we necessarily would say that out loud. I'm, I hope I don't think that, but I'm sure there's shades of that in my heart. Oh, my heart's deceiving, man. Um, so I just want to lead us in a time of prayer. And... Um, Take this opportunity. Just confess where you're at. Um, If you're here and you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus yet, and that's something that's just striking you as uh, something God's calling you to do, I want to offer this time for that as well. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as, as much as it hurts, I'm thankful that you put brick walls in our lives, that you put us in situations that are far beyond what, what material resources or intelligence or physical power can do, um, can heal, that can, can accomplish. In Jesus, we confess that there are ills in our hearts. And there are ills in this world that we cannot heal in our own power. We repent of our false gods, whatever they may be. And know that as soon as we stop praying this prayer, as soon as we leave this place, we're going to be tempted again. So, Jesus, we pray for new life. We pray for your spirit to come and dwell in us, to make us like you. I pray, Jesus, that you would cause us to love the things that you love and to hate the things that you hate. You've had a bad taste in our mouth for the things that are counterfeit in life. And in all things, Jesus, help us to be compassionate, to be men and women of prayer, to throw ourselves into your hands, your capable and loving hands. We are thankful that you are Christ the King today. In your name we pray. Jesus, amen.